Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author and professor Todd Mealy, the author of Shades of Brown, which is now out on our Oxford Southern imprint, which is our academic line. Shades of Brown, the official biography of Jane Elliott and the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise, Elliott and her controversial eye color exercise on discrimination. Todd M. Mealy is an adjunct professor in the history department at Dickinson College and has spent two decades teaching history and writing at urban and rural schools in Pennsylvania. He writes frequently about the civil rights movement and educational reform. Todd is the founder and director of the National Institute for Customizing Education. Welcome, Dr. Mealy. Lawrence, thank you, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I know this is our second book together, and uh, a very exciting book, Shades of Brown. Um, for those in the audience that don't know who Jane Elliott is, and what she's accomplished in her career. Maybe you could give us the elevator speech about why why we should care, why this is interesting. Well, um, the McGraw-Hill Foundation, which a lot of teachers know, uh, publishes a lot of the textbooks that are used, especially in, in uh, social studies classes, named her about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, one of the top uh, or uh, one of the most important 30 educators in history. Um, and so the education world has has known about Jane for quite some time, and they've followed her uh, a rather um, important lesson plan that has uh, given her many fans, but then many critics as well. And so uh, a little bit more than 50 years ago, after Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, uh, Jane, who taught at uh, Riceville Elementary Schools, it's in Northern Iowa, and um, she had been teaching. Uh, she was about thirty. She was thirty-four years old and had taught at a couple of schools uh, prior to arriving at Riceville, which is her hometown. And she had been back there for four years and ended up uh, dividing her students by eye color and uh, created a classroom simulation on discrimination. A couple years later. Uh, a very popular documentary was made about the eye color exercise. It's called The Eye of the Storm, uh, which was produced by Bill and Muriel Peters. Uh, that and uh, thereafter, she was a sought-after diversity trainer hmm. and is known in some circles as the mother of diversity training. Yeah. So Blue Eyes Brown, is now when you're saying Northern Iowa, I'm envisioning a class that's probably mostly uh, people of European descent, was that the case, or was there also an urban, or was there also African-American, or what was the setting like, and what was the diversity like in the class that she was teaching at the time? Yeah, Lawrence, you had that right. So Riceville had a, a total population of under 1,000 people, a little bit more than 900 people. Um, she, the town was, was all um, European descent, which you might describe as white, all Christian and so there is very little uh, uh, racial or ethnic and religious diversity in town. Um, there is very little diversity of thought in town as well. And um, one of the things that I try to uh, drive out in the book is a lot of the, the contextual framing of what led up to her eye color uh, discrimination uh, lesson plan. 
Um, and one of the motivating factors. And uh, many proclaim that no one was racist and uh, there weren't any racial problems or cultural problems in Riceville. Mm-hmm. And she had experience living in Waterloo, which is one of the larger cities in Iowa, which is which is one of the more um, uh, culturally diverse cities in Iowa and before returning to Riceville. And I think it was her growing up uh, in and around Riceville, leaving it, being exposed to different cultures, coming back to Riceville. But then also you have to consider what was going on in the late 60s because the civil rights movement had just, you know, um, killed Jim Crow. And that had a significant impact on the education system. Right. And so I think your what your listeners could do is, is try to put themselves in the shoes of educators in the mid to late 1960s. And there is within school buildings about, you know, how to what is our role in the desegregation of the country? Mm-hmm. And so what Jane did in 68 for the first time after King was killed was actually something that wasn't new. Uh, there were a lot of stories that were in the press about teachers trying to, to create, come up with lesson plans that that taught cultural diversity, that taught um, cultural values and sort through those values. And Jane, in fact, toyed with the idea of doing the exercise in 67. Iowa, particularly in Waterloo, again, where she had lived for eight, had faced in two consecutive years um, racial uh, disturbances in the city that followed incidents of, um, of uh, uh, police encounters with, with African-Americans in Waterloo. And so there were things going on in, in the state where she lived and so in 67, she kind of flirted with the idea of doing the exercise. She just decided not to do it. But, but the King assassination was kind of the last straw. And she says, uh, yeah, I think teachers have a role in um, helping students uh, see the world through an empathetic lens. And so that's, I mean, that's what drove her. Wow. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine this. I, and, you know, as you were talking about that era, I'm going to date myself because I started into the public school system right around 1970. So uh, I'm, I'm in first grade, um, having been born in 64. So as a little one, um, I'm oblivious to a lot of this. And, and in my school experience was um, mostly well, the community I was in. It was very much a white community and a little bit of integration of uh, – some different ethnicities, religions, and so on, but pretty homogeneous. And uh, But anyway, we didn't recognize, we didn't even talk about differences or, or have any real idea about them. Maybe we were naive to it, or maybe it just wasn't an issue, but I, re- I don't remember our teachers ever really having to point anything like that out or deal with that, but we also all were getting along. And may- maybe, I hate to use the term colorblind, um, I think naive might be better <laughs> for describing my childhood and friends uh, in that era. But I, so, yeah, it, maybe I was blessed with the after effects of this as when I was going through my schooling afterwards. But someone like my parents' generation, uh, certainly watching the television about all that strife back then in the 60s and having read the history, it, it was quite a time. Um, um, you know, so I've taught, you mentioned in the, in your introduction, you know, I've taught for more than two decades, students come to class with questions. You know, there's things that happen in the world that they see on the news 
that's no different today yeah. than it was in 1968 or 1970 when, when you said you were starting. And Jane had students come into class with questions. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, contextual, um, there's a lot of things going on uh, in the 60s that I think you, you can see as, as context for what she became famous for, that eye color exercise. I mean, she had aspired to be a nurse, but then she ended up enrolling in the Iowa State Teachers College. And then she became trained in this John Dewey, quote, learn by doing way of teaching, mm -hmm. this kind of like experiential learning pedagogy, which emphasizes hands-on and active engagement in the material. And so she was a teacher who intentionally came up with lesson plans, no matter what she was supposed to teach in the curriculum, but it wasn't like, here, I'm going to just deposit information into your brains. We're going to actually do it. And so you need to consider that when she's coming up with a way to try to teach culture, you know, to her third grade students at the time. Um, she was an expert teacher when it came to teaching the dyslexic child. Uh, she had gotten certified in 64 in a place called the Rome Remedial Center for Dyslexic Studies. It's in uh, Minnesota. And she this was an issue that was personal to her. Um, you know, she had a uh, what she says, a husband and a son who were both dyslexic. And she was approached by parents in the community to teach their children who they had identified as being dyslexic as well. And so she had gotten certified. And that's where she started to look at um, what services should exist for students with learning differences? And then how can that apply to other marginalized groups? I think that's an important part of her story, her, 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 her commitment to teaching dyslexic children. Um, I mentioned her growing up in Waterloo, but that civil rights piece is, is critical to understanding Jane Elliott because mm -hmm. Title IV of the Civil Rights Act of 64, you know, sped up the integration of schools. And as you mentioned, you went to a you know school that was predominantly white. Jane taught at a school that was 100% white. Um, but yet teachers were getting questions from students and also thinking about, well, there is kind of a third founding going on in the country. We had just concluded the second reconstruction. You know, for your your listeners that are historians, they'll they see the the civil rights movement that era in the fifties and the sixties as the second reconstruction. Yeah. Well, if you're reconstructing something, you're kind of founding the country anew. And so, the first reconstruction after the Civil War, as you know, Lawrence is is deemed the second founding of the country with things like the citizenship, birthright citizenship, and equal protection of the Fourteenth Amendment. It creates a new country. And so, the civil rights movement and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, etc., that created like a third founding, and teachers were just kind of exploring ideas. What is our role in, in this second founding in, no matter where they taught, okay. you know, whether, whether it was a school that was integrating or it was a school like Riceville community school district, the elementary school there, which there was no diversity, but do a teachers have a role in trying to expose students to various cultures and to be able to, to act accordingly. All right. Let's hold that thought, Todd. We're talking to Todd Mealy, the author of Shades of Brown. We'll be right back. 
Sunbury Press Books offers work by independent authors. Our imprint, Catamount Press, explores literature and creative nonfiction of the Northern Appalachia. The writings of P.J. Piccarello, including the Northern Appalachia Review Series, an annual publication for under-recognized literature. Also check out Dennis LeBaire's Appalachian Gross Dog, a boomer's memoir. Find these and more at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Todd Mealy, the author of Shades of Brown, the official biography of Jane Elliott and the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes Exercise. We've talked a lot about Jane and her history, how she came to teaching and her philosophy, her approach after the Martin Luther King assassination to try to bring some kind of conversation uh, about race into the classroom. And this Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise, for those listening who don't know what it is, maybe Todd, you could explain a little bit uh, what the exercise was. How did, obviously you're in a, a classroom that wasn't diverse, but she introduced diversity, or difference, I guess is a better term. Yeah, and I'd be happy to explain it. Um, what Jane did is she, uh, so she, she taught third grade uh, for a number of years, and then she'll move up to the middle school, teach seventh graders um, uh, as well. So she did this at both levels before doing the exercise with adults. And so what she would do is she would separate um, students by the color of their eyes, uh, so you'd have a, a group of blue-eyed students and a group of brown-eyed students. If there were any green-eyed students, she would choose which group they would go um, based on really the numbers that were in the class. Mm-hmm. But she would. So the intention was to use an, uh, a trait that one can't control. It's determined largely by melanin. And so she had explored ideas about height or hair color or um, um, uh gender or you know there's other options giving people teach color different color t-shirts but she ultimately chose chose eye color and um, she said she got the idea from hitler and she would create a caste system in her classroom and that means that she's moving students around she's moving to the front of the classroom those who would be privileged she's moving to the back of the classroom those who would be uh, underprivileged uh, so she seg- segregates the classroom as well. Um, she would give out uh, first armbands, later collars for the students that were at the bottom of the cast uh, to wear as uh, an expression of social stigma. Um, the, uh, and then all the perks would be given to the students that were on top. And so like seconds for lunch, first in line uh, for recess, um, do not talk to the underprivileged students. Um, and so she created this segregated setting, social system Mm -hmm. uh, in her classroom. And now while she did this, she would flip the exercise. So one day she would put, say, the uh, um, blue-eyed students at the top of the hierarchy, brown-eyed students at the bottom. She would do the exercise for the duration of a class day. And then the next day they'd come into class and she would flip it and say, well, I lied to you yesterday. And she explained now why brown-eyed people are superior to blue-eyed people. Um, and so she did this for a while by running the, the, extra, the lesson plan for two days. And when she started to work with adults, she, she kind of abridged the exercise. She would only be a couple hours, 90 minutes to three hours, and she would only put uh, blue-eyed people at the bottom and brown-eyed people would always be at the top. One thing that if any of the listeners catch this, any of the um, the documentaries on YouTube, the perception is that um, um, 
blue-eyed people were on top and brown-eyed people were on the on the bottom of the cast because that's how it's shown in the 1970 Eye of the Storm. Mm. And she did that largely because of that was the makeup of her class in terms of numbers. It just worked better that way. Um, and so teachers that tried to mimic the exercise in the, in the decades that, that followed, they did this, they did what they saw on, on television and end up, you know, causing a lot of problems, particularly as schools became more diverse and mm. in terms of ethnically diverse. And now all of a sudden you're, you're putting students of color in the bottom and, and uh, it's bringing up, you know, some issues with parents and whatnot. But that's essentially what she did. So she created a, a racial caste system within her classroom as a way to simulate discrimination in society. So you had mentioned in the opening about it being controversial. So uh, obviously some people embrace this this thinking or this approach, thinking it's ingenious, I'm guessing. And others have probably just, how dare you? <laughs> Exactly. And it was like that since the first time she did the exercise in 68. Um, so there's always been critics and supporters of the eye of the eye color exercise. And she's dealt with like hate mail and um, phone calls and, and whatnot, death threats even about what she's done throughout her career. Um, when she first did the exercise in 68, she lost some friends and she became like an outcast within her own community. Her parents owned a, um, an inn, which had a very popular um, uh, dining establishment with that Bennett. They lost a lot of customers and ultimately will struggle with that business. And she, she blames it on the exercise. Um, so she's dealt with the critics um, her entire life. And, you know, what I tried to write in Shades of Brown is just like an, an objective, here are the facts, Here's Jane's story. Here's the details of the eye exercise. Here's how it changes through time. And the reader can come up with their own opinion on, on whether something like that has value or not. Or um, the way Jane did it, uh, arguably lacked ethics, but there are ways that it could be done. So I, I kind of leave that open for the reader to decide. Right, right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and that perception of ethics probably evolves through the decades as well, I'm guessing. Um, well, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, of course, especially as I, I think I mentioned earlier that she's known as like the the individual who who launched this movement of diversity training at the in corporate America, not just in, in education, but but the corporate world. And that really blew up in the 80s, um, the 80s and the early 90s. And ever since, you know, there are people that say that, you know, diversity training works and diversity training doesn't. Um, you know, that's actually, Lawrence, one of the reasons why I decided to, to write a book about Jane Elliott, because one of the most um, pressing uh, motivations was that a lot of people were talking about um, uh, diversity 20. And so companies at the time were, were duty bound. They felt duty bound to do something kind of performative to show that they were on the side of, of racial justice. Um, but yet, Shortly thereafter, there was this this um, uh, counter movement that said that diversity training or anti-racism training is, is counterproductive. And so I thought I could understand uh, this moment in time by going back into to history and kind of seeing where this all started um, with, with Jane Elliott. What, what I learned is like she is kind of she became the face and she became like the 
the anvil for, for people to hammer on um, when they were criticizing diversity training and teachers that, that, that um, you know, talked about um, uh, like moral education in the classroom. She was the, the face of the movement, even though she wasn't privy. So I, I thought if I can understand what was happening 50 years ago, then I can make more sense of what's going on today. Makes perfect sense. We're going to be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821 to 1921 by H.M.J. Klein. Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Todd Mealy, the author of Shades of Brown, the official biography of Jane Elliott in the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise. And Todd, uh, you know, I think it's admirable to go back, look at the history, see what meaning we can find in the past. You find this pioneer who uh, tried something different way back when. And, uh, you know, does it really have implications today? You know, that there is a lot of controversy about DEI training, and I, I see positive and negative about it myself in my own travels. Um, where do you think we're going to land on that? Is is that still ambiguous? Do you think it's always going to be controversial? Or, or, is there an, or is there a nugget here that comes out of this book or out of your learnings? That well, what I think help? that, yeah, what, what I think should, somebody should do is try to collect, try to do studies and collect empirical evidence to see if, you know, diversity training works. There are, like I'll tell you, there are positives and there are negatives about it. Um, you know, the negatives is that, you know, people say it, it is counterproductive. It doesn't accomplish what it proclaims that it's trying to accomplish, which is to reduce racism or sexism or homophobia, et cetera. Uh, argued that it makes workplaces more divisive, in fact. But, you know, the positive is that, you know, the, the companies are uh, showing that they're supportive of social justice. And what that does is I think is it, it attracts talent and it attracts a diverse pool of candidates where these issues are important to them um and obviously you have the argument that it that it could could ward off you know potential lawsuits so i think i think it's it comes down to one of the things i've learned by you know writing this book and applying it to contemporary matters is that um it should actually teach people how to engage constructively you know so instead of like uh you have an instructor come in and, you know, it gets more ideological and there you're forcing um, viewpoints and values upon others. Right. Uh, and I don't think that should be the focus. I think the focus should be in the future, we're going to encounter these issues. And I think here's how constructively we could deal with this as colleagues. And then I think the other is to apply the training to, you know, specific roles or specific jobs in the workplace, like make it more responsive or relevant, customize it even to specific departments. Because what I'll, what I'll say, and I don't want to go too long, feel free to cut me off, is as I apply that back to Jane, I think Jane teaches us two things, whether you like her or you don't, whether you like the exercise or you don't, I think what she has done has given us two really profound things to think about. One is that there's a power in labeling Let's say you're a teacher. There's power in labeling students. And so teachers will talk about students as they're being passed on from one, one grade to another. And so that labeling happens through word of mouth. And so it doesn't really allow these children to start fresh with a clean slate with a new teacher. 
And then you have what today we call stereotype threat. This comes out in the exercise. This comes out in the Eye of the Storm documentary is that students will live up or they'll live down to the label that an authority figure, a teacher in a sense, will give them. Mm-hmm. And so I think her, her exercise shows us that happening. And then the other is empathy. Now, Jane was just being a teacher in 1968. She wasn't leading a civil rights movement. She wasn't even leading an empathy revolution at first. And, but in 68, she was trying to teach her. You know, the media will create the Jane Elliott that we all know today. Mm-hmm. But what she is doing now is telling us, there, look, there's two things that are valuable for human relations. One is we have to be honest. So we have to teach the truth. And so what you choose as an educator to, to teach about or not teach about, it speaks to the students about what's valuable and what's not valuable. So just teach the truth is one thing that, that comes out of this story. And the other is that it's a really third grade logic that could bridge people's, you know, um, uh, culture gaps. And that's, she gives us a real anemic, melanotic, melanaceous, and mosaic. And so melanemic would be those that we ascribe as white. Melanotic would be those that would be ascribed as people of color, brown, light skin. Mm-hmm. And melanaceous would be those who are black. Mm-hmm. racially categorized as black mosaic or people that would I typically identify as mixed race. She says, if we could remove those color coded race labels, it's like race is dead. It, it's not real. It doesn't exist. Culture and color is real. Yes. So long live them. And if we can kill off these racial labels, then her point is that I think we could, we can, we can get along. You know, uh, what she tells us is that, um, both sides are saying the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's the political right of center saying we're the human race and left of center are saying race is a social construct. That's the same thing. Yep. But they don't see it. Both sides don't say see that they're saying the same thing. It says if we can just change these the language then you know, we we could we could fix this. And that's where the title of the book comes from. What I love about her story is here's a person who was just being a third grade teacher doing her job, being creative. And lo and behold, look what she's done just, just by doing her work. And I think it's a message to anybody working in whatever profession you do, whatever job you do, however low, however high, you don't know the ramifications down the line. It's something that you do, what effect it might have, what impact you might have. Sometimes it happens in your own lifetime. Sometimes it happens afterwards. But, yeah, it's really cool to see, to learn about her and her her efforts back then and yes it's controversial but hey we're talking about it today and you know now people know who she is so um fascinating topic fascinating topic if we only all right todd as teachers could it could have a similar impact on people and have that conversation come out of our work someday would be uh, phenomenal so so tell us a little bit more about you we have a few minutes left uh maybe a couple uh what else are you working on and how's the teaching going at dickinson Okay, so, um, well, I, my workload at Dickinson is lightened up, so I, I am now there just in the summers. Um, I, I had spent a couple, couple um, evenings in the, in the fall and spring semester, did that for a couple years, and not football at the time, and so that I got out of coaching uh, to do that. And now I'm there in the summers. So There's a great program in the summers called the Knowledge for Freedom. Um, so I'm doing that. I've been doing that for the last couple of years, uh, and then... 
Uh, I teach full-time at uh, McCaskey High School. It's an urban district in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, largest district in Lancaster County. Um, so I'm there. Uh, I am starting my 23rd year as a teacher. Wow. Um, but in addition to, um, to teaching, uh, I am the, the executive director uh, as, of the National Institute for Customizing Education. We're an education firm that specializes in curriculum writing. And we're proud that, like, uh, the most recent work we've been doing, we work with, with schools across the, the country, largely. Um, we're really in the mid-Atlantic, a couple schools in the south. But um, we've been working for the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent so- uh, Social Change. We've been doing that for two years now. We're really proud of that work. Uh, work with Bernice King, Dr. King. Wow. Um, and, then, uh, and then you asked me what I'm writing at the moment. So now that the... I'm speaking about the Shades of Brown, so I'm speaking about this book, um, but I just, uh, just days ago, um, started my new project, which is going to be really a biography of Muhammad Ali's training camp in in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. So it's not a biography of of Ali, it's a biography of the camp. Mm -hmm. And so he spent the last uh, eight to 10 years uh, training uh, there um, from 72 to 82. And so I want to tell that story. Very interesting. So it's been great having so you on. So if any of your, listener, if any yeah. of your listeners had, uh, sorry, Lord, had visited the camp when Ali trained, you know, have them reach out to me. Okay. Yeah. I know I've driven past it. I, I never uh, never was there when he was there. But very cool that that's fairly close by. We're both in South Central, Southeastern Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. um, great having you on, Todd. And an excellent book, Shades of Brown. Um, look forward to the next project. Hopefully you bring it to us as well. Well, great. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.